This is Brian Smith, the UG founder, and you're listening to Awakened Nation with Brad Zoller. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Brian, hey buddy, how you doing, man? Good, Brad, how you doing? Hanging in, I'm excited to talk to you, and as you know, uh, most of our audience, uh, the women, are the ones who are going to go crazy over this show, right? <laughs> well, I think uh, the content is yeah, equally men and women, but you're right. Women are the, the, the real, real fans of Uggs, that's for sure. I, I saw Uggs in New York City, and we're talking 20 years ago, and I couldn't believe how people just go crazy over these boots. And we're going to talk about your journey today. Um, sure. I, just, I just love uh, what you've done, man. You, you've done more than just create a brand. You've gotten inside people's heads, and that's what I like. Yes, it's, it's a remarkable brand. It, it's the only brand that I know of where people will tell me the, the story of their first pair of Ugg boots, you know? How many other products do people own that they would never talk about like that? It, it's a really remarkable brand. Oh, no, not at all. Well, let me dig in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read your bio. Brian Smith has charted his own course to become one of the great entrepreneurial success stories of our time. In 1978, he imported six pairs of sheepskin boots from Australia with a dream to build a business where every American would eventually be wearing the product. And that is how one of the world's most recognizable brands began. And sales of UGG products have exceeded a billion dollars in each of the past six years. Today, Brian enjoys guiding entrepreneurs and business professionals on their journey to success by sharing lessons he learned while building the UGG brand. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Brian Smith. Here I am. Dude. Hey, let's go back to 1978. I want you to paint this picture. You're at yeah. UCLA. Uh, you're a surfer. You graduated uh, in Australia, came to the United States. You were lined up to be an accountant, but that didn't feel right am i right yeah i i quit um the day i graduated uh as a public <laughs> accountant because I, I hated it so much and it was uh during you know meditating one day when i was trying to think okay what will i do with my life that i i thought uh, damn all the big brands are coming out of california you know i'm going to go to california i'm going to find the next big thing and bring it back to australia and make my fortune and uh, within weeks, I was uh, just, you know, arriving in Los Angeles, had my surfboard in my um, uh, suitcase and ended up getting a little house at Malibu and went straight up to, you know, surfing there. And it was um, probably three or four months into that where I was meeting tons of people but not finding the next big thing. And then it was October and November and the wind was getting chilly and the water was cold. And I remember finishing a surf and pulling on my sheepskin boots that I'd brought from Australia. And I had this massive goosebump dose again. And I, I went, oh, my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And so the, uh, the big aha wasn't finding a brand in America and taking it to Australia. It was the opposite. So I just started, you know, I, I found a 
did a little research and found a manufacturer in Western Australia and bought six pairs of samples from him, and that was really the birth of Ark. Wow. So you're basically li- listening to Pink Floyd, surfing during the day, trying to figure out life. <laughs> yeah. And you put on your boots and you really – I think this is the power of an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur uh, sees holes. They see holes in the market. They see a product right. missing, that, and they want to solve a problem. And, and you yeah. – Coming from Australia, you already had the sheepskin boots everywhere in Australia. Am I correct? Yeah, well, one in two Australians own some sort of sheepskin footwear. So to me, this was a no-brainer. Like I'm going to be an instant millionaire. You know, <laughs> you've, you've all heard you've all heard that before. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I I uh, really thought this was going to be instant. And uh, what I didn't realize, though, and this is a big lesson for entrepreneurs there's a certain amount of ignorance required to be a good entrepreneur because if you knew everything that was going to come up you wouldn't start you know it's really that simple so i was ignorant about how americans didn't understand sheepskin like australians do and so it what i thought would be a slam dunk turned into this horrible problem of confronting all the shoe stores where oh, you're crazy trying to sell wool in, in California, you know, whereas Australia's climate's the same as California. Uh, all the way through to, oh, well, you know, we have mud and slush back east and that sheepskin's too delicate, it'll never work, you know. And, you know, Australians know that it's rugged and you can wear them when it's wet and it still retains warmth and, you know, you, 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 know, you can wear them no matter what the temperature because they, they insulate and they... You know, they breathe if it's too hot uh, outside or inside. You know, the, the, all these characteristics of sheepskin that Americans didn't know. So what I thought would be an instant, simple business turned out to be a three or four year period where I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I, I find this the most fascinating part of being an entrepreneur. And it is true. You kind of, there's two things you're going to be overcoming. And the first is, a lot of people don't believe in you. And then the second thing is, is you got all this negative stuff to prove yourself. And I think it makes you a better salesperson. As soon as you hear an objection, yep. you kind of get your sales pitch down. But the other thing is, is you know, you really do have to be naive in the beginning because um, when I started one of my companies, I forgot there are 4,000 other companies competing with me in New York City. Right. <laughs> and so you're like sitting there. So I'm listening to this and I'm just cracking up because this is the entrepreneurial journey, but it really made you sharper. And tell us yeah. when, when the first like sale happened. Like, what was that like? You must have been excited. I bought six pairs of samples from this factory in Western Australia and you know, got shut out by the shoe stores because they just didn't want to talk to me. Um, but all my friends up at Malibu thought this was the best thing in the world. You know, they loved Doug Boots and they were aware of them. And it, and it finally, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to pivot. And, and I thought, well, how come they all like it? And then I thought, oh, my God, all those surfers from California who went to Australia in the 60s and 70s, they, they all bought boots back for their buddies. So within the surf community, Doug was pretty well known. So we switched gears and, and I, I started selling to all the surf shops. Right. And my first road, my first road trip was, oh my God, Ugg, that a fantastic, yeah, you're going to make a fortune, you know. Every surf <laughs> shop I went to said that. So that inspired me to borrow, you know, or actually get investment for twenty grand, 
which in today's terms is about 70,000. I bought 500 pairs in from Australia because it was going to be so big in the surf shops. And when they arrived, I you know, arranged them all and I put them in big duffel bags and went back out on the road to go sell them. And I went to the same, the very same stores, you know, and I go, okay, well, how many do you want? They go, oh, Brian, well done, man. But we couldn't sell them in our store. We just sell surfboards and trunks and flip-flops and, you know, the, but don't worry, the shoe stores are going to love you. <laughs> and, and, and this happened all the way down the coast, you know. And so the, it ended up the total sales of UGG for the first season was 28 mm. pairs. Wow. Right? Out of yeah, 500. Like seven, <laughs> seven, out of 500, it was nothing. It was hugely demoralizing. And it took like three or four years uh, before I finally got the, the secret. Do you want to know what that was? I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. Please let me know. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, it was a combination of two things. Well, like each year I would advertise with these models posed on the rocks on the, the one of the big popular beaches yeah. here. You know, I'd run the ads and the sales the next year went to 5,000 and the next year to 10,000 and the next year to about 18,000. And I couldn't figure out what was going wrong, you know, because I, I should have been selling way more than that. Mm-hmm. And three or four years of summer jobs, you know, I was about to quit. and But I had to get rid of the last product. So I was having a beer with one of my surf shop owners and talking about this advertising problem. And he, he called out to all these little 12, 13-year-old kids in the back room that left their surfboards in his shop. And, and uh, he said, what do you guys think of Uggs? And every one of them just went, oh, those Uggs, man, they're so fake. Have you seen those ads? Those models can't surf. And I realized instantly that I'd been posing these fake images on, on in Surfer magazine, and these little kids were seeing right through it. And it was almost embarrassing for me to realize how bad they were. So I ended up calling a buddy of mine who ran this Scholastic Surf Association in Orange County, and, and I said, Pete, do you have any young kids who are going to turn pro soon? I need some some little, you know, some credible kids. And he gave me two guys, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson, and I just photographed them walking. You know, we went surfing to Black's Beach in La Jolla and Trestles up in San Onofre. And when I ran those ads, these walks, these roads are iconic walks to the surf spots. And I, I, I figured that all these little kids who read Surfer Magazine would be dying to walk on the, these roads with Mike Parsons and Ted, you know. And so I ran those uh, ads that next season, and the sales went to two hundred thousand dollars. Wow! And that's <laughs> when I realised the importance of capturing the the emotion or the image of what it is you're selling in an ad. Now, all the previous ads I'd done, the the focus was all about the boot. You know, the boot was a major thing in the ad. When I ran these other ads with Mike and Ted, you could hardly see the boots. They were just you know, walking along the road, you know. Right. And so it really drove home to me that you never advertise the product itself. You advertise the benefits or the feeling or the emotion that will draw people in. And I knew that every little kid reading Surfer magazine would just die to be walking along that road with Mike and Ted. So that was the big change um, in uh, selling. And that worked at the same time there was, this trade show I was at with and a woman was like, I knew she had about six ski shops and uh, 
she was from back east and 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 she was going no they'll never work in my area though you know we have mud and slush and, and finally in real frustration i said look just take your sock off and put this boot on and it i it took forever for her to do it because she was so adamant that it wouldn't work but the, when she finally put the boot on she went oh my god these are so comfortable i could sell these as after ski boots <laughs> <laughs> and she she ordered like sixty or seventy pairs, which at the time was humongous order for yeah. us, you know. And then then I realised, oh my god! From now on, we never go out and try and sell Uggs to a buyer until they've taken their shoe and sock off and put it on their foot. And those those two things, the advertising lesson and making sure people tried them on first, was the two biggest things that launched the. That, that's what really opened the floodgates to the sales. Wow. I hope everybody's taking notes because you just gave a masterclass in building a brand from scratch. You had yeah. a market that was a tiny niche market. You were selling wrongly to them, marketing wrongly to them, right. figured it out quickly, <laughs> adjusted, and then built into another market, skiing. And all of a sudden, yeah. uh, you're beginning to understand this is a lifestyle brand. Uggs is definitely That's a lifestyle right. brand. So, and it always says loud and clear when somebody wears Uggs, uh, we're outdoorsy, we're rugged, we're individuals who go off on these treks, whether surfing or on a mountain. And uh, yep. I love that. So, so let's continue. You're building this brand from really from your uh, from the trunk of your car in the beginning, and now it's building into an actual company. Yeah, yeah, and it sort of it spread across the country slowly so each year there'd be some new market would take off and would just give me more and more enthusiasm to keep going the, the difficult one was back in the midwest and, and back east because they really you know if it wasn't rubber you know like sorrels they, they weren't interested in any sort of boots you know and trying to convince them that they would work was was difficult but how i got around that uh, i figured out that like no kid in Minnesota reads Surfer Magazine, right? But they all read hockey and they play hockey. And yes. I figured all the moms have to what take their kids to the hockey rink and sit in the rinks while you know, it's 44 degrees, you know? And so I started advertising to all the young hockey market by you know, picking out a couple of young pros. And the same principle worked in every, every market that I went into. And so it ended up the moms had to buy the kids' boots you know, the Ugg boots, but while they're doing it, they're thinking, man, these are really cool. I might get a pair for myself. And so that began the, the, you know, the big push into the women becoming very strong advocates of Ugg. And so eventually we got the whole country covered in the sporting goods areas, but I wanted a much bigger image. So I created the term casual comfort, decided I'm going to try and publicize this as a as a comfort brand rather than just a surf brand or a ski brand or a hockey brand and i wanted to get on the the cover of you know the, the main page of usa today because i knew i figured that would be the biggest expose for this casual comfort image that i wanted to show so i hired a pr agency and it took a couple of months to put this program together and i'd made an appointment with the fashion editor at usa today and when I got there, she she sort of double booked her appointment, and so 
instead of having you know 45 minutes i had five minutes and i uh, as a sort of a knee-jerk thing as an entrepreneur when when you hit a wall like that you have to think quickly and pivot so i pulled out a a folder of of all of these celebrities that had been seen wearing uggs and one of them was pamela anderson who was on baywatch and there's a photograph of her standing on the beach with a script in her hand and and wearing ugby the big tall white ugg boots and as much as i didn't want to use that because that's not really how uggs are worn this fashion editor grabbed it out of my hands and took the name of the photographer and anyway to, to cut a long story short the next day in the front of the lifestyle section um was this huge article on UGG and the sheepskin industry and how uh, it was taking over, you know, the, the comfort footwear business in America. And, and believe it or not, when I got back to San Diego that next day, I found that shops from all over the country were calling up asking how they could stock UGG boots and consumers were calling up saying, where's a store in my area, you know? So it was that bottom line is that that huge urge to make a casual comfort thing and get it into USA Today was by far the biggest turning point for UGG because then it became not just a surf boot or a ski boot, it became a a casual comfort item of footwear and anybody could wear it. I love this about you because you created, you actually created a brand new category and for those of you listening in, this is around the time when they started making hiking sneakers because casual comfort was like a thing. So before this, <laughs> if you wanted to go hiking, you had to buy hiking boots. You couldn't get like right. these uh, newfangled sneakers that look like hiking boots. And along comes Ugg right in the middle of all this and wedges themselves in and dominates. You know what You know what I really found fascinating that you were just talking about, and I realized this, Brian, because I've known you for a few years, and this, I, I didn't even know this. Uggs really started out as, as for for men. I mean, it was both men and women, but it didn't yeah. take off as a female brand until you got into the skiing and the hockey and, and all mm-hmm. these other areas. I find that fascinating that you were able to pivot at such a, a, a level. I mean, this is smart yeah. this is smart stuff. Yeah. It wasn't really well thought through at the time, but in retrospect, it was you know, brilliant. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. You know, I can't take the credit for it. It just, it, the, the product just got into the market and evolved itself. You know, the, everybody who bought a pair would talk to their friends about it. So the word of mouth was really, really powerful. And even today, when I go to, you know, when I finish up a, a, a talk or a speech, because I, I do a lot of keynote speaking now to yeah. entrepreneurs, I would say half the audience would come up to me afterwards and tell me the story of their first pair of Ugg boots. It's just fascinating how how endemic it is to, you know, what, what a, an emotional product it is to everybody. Oh, through the years, I mean, I've bought girlfriend's Uggs, uh, my wife Uggs, things like this. Right. And, and it's like magical. Christmas morning, they just, yeah. they light up like a Christmas tree and it's like the, your love is rekindled, you know, guys, <laughs> buy, buy Uggs every, every Christmas, do it, you know, or birthdays. Uh, it's, it is, it's amazing. It is amazing. And and I want people to understand this. You know, you were you were driven by a passion for this. You know, it wasn't, hey, I'm going to build this big company. You started out bringing a, a product 
to America that you were passionate about because it kind of really fit into your lifestyle. I mean, you were already a surfer. Yeah, uh, yeah I already, I already brought. I mean, I brought my own with me before I even considered making a business out of it. And I, yeah, here's the thing I, I want to really point out about this. I, and I can tell you this, Brian, and you, you are allowed to laugh at me over this, but through the years, I uh, would have a passion for something and I wouldn't invest in it. You know, or I'd love something and I'd be like, you know, and you're taking your lifestyle and putting it on the line. You believed in this, uh-huh. you believed in this product, you're living it. Uh, and it kind of, to anybody listening, it's like, you're almost like the accidental entrepreneur. It, it, it's like, it just, right there it is, right in front of you, boom, and that's it. You took yep. off with it. Yep, and there were lots of reasons, or lots of times I wanted to give up, you know, when yeah. it got too hard, but, but I just kept thinking, no, you know, one in two Australians has a pair. It's not the product, it must be me. And yeah. I kept coming back to that over and over again. It's not the product, it must be me. And that's what made me want to get better and better and try... Because, you know, the bottom line, any entrepreneur who grows a business doesn't do it by doing all the right things. It's, it, it, it's doing anything that's possible. And when it doesn't work, it's figuring out how to get around what doesn't work. That, that, that's the greatest trait of any good entrepreneur is being able to hit the wall and figure a way around or up or over or under the wall to, to get to where they want to be. That's yeah. by far the strongest trait of an entrepreneur. That's one of the most powerful things I've heard. I mean, it, it, it's, um, it's like tinkering. It's tinkering mm-hmm. for perfection, trying to get that there. Now, now, this wasn't all easy along this road. You had a bumpy time with partners coming in, and uh, I believe you, you had been ousted at one point, or you, and you had to hit the road again and do sales again. Uh, yeah. You want to talk that about that? A, okay, that was a bittersweet period. It, and it was caused by the success of the business. It, after that three or four years, I, d- I did have to get a bigger investor in. I, uh, I bought the original one out and got a bigger investor. And then I had to buy them out and bring in a bigger one. And, and, and then there's a period where I, I got these three other investors and I were, were going to start the next iteration of ARC. Again, because they had more money to buy more product, which was always what was stifling me. And we did a deal whereby we were all going to own the company 25% each. And as part of the deal, I was not going to be running the company from the internal side, but I was going to be out on the road selling. And at the time, I really enjoyed that because I'd come to love sales, which was unusual for an accountant. But uh, other, the other part of the deal was that I didn't actually get my stock certificate issued for the 25% until I finished this little trademark lawsuit. And I knew I'd win that, so I, I went ahead with the deal. And so immediately removed all the product up to Anaheim where they were based, and uh, we set up the warehouse there, and I went back on the road, and I, I went down Beach Boulevard to Huntington Beach, and you know, one of my surf shops, and uh, I walked in, and, hey, Chris, how you doing? And he goes, hey, Brian, I heard you sold the company. And I went, what? He said, yeah, I, I called in an order, and they said, you don't own the company anymore. You said, you're kidding me. They said that, and yeah. it was devastating to me. I went next door to the Shell gas station after I finished, and I, I called up Anaheim. I go, what, what the hell are you guys talking about? And he said, well, well, Brian, you don't own the company you until you finish the lawsuit. And I, I immediately hung up, and I went back to San Diego about 100 miles, and I uh, 
pulled out the contract and I read it and I reread it and I said, oh my God, you know, I really don't own the company until I finish that lawsuit. And I went into this huge depression. It lasted three or four days and eventually, you know, I was, uh, remember one night, you know, just lying on the back on the floor watching TV and my wife was on the couch and the show finished and I, I, I rolled over on my stomach and I got up on my hands and knees and started crawling to bed. And my wife, who's really quiet, she just went, you get up now and walk to bed like a man, you know, and it, <laughs> and it shocked me. And, it, and I started, as I started to stand up, it was like I, I got back into reality and I, it was like this fog, you know, cleared and I thought, oh my God, there's so much more to life than this crappy little sheepskin company. And... The next day I went up, you know, back to Anaheim. I ate humble pie and I said, look, I may never own the company, but I'm going to make sure I get a pair of boots on every single person in America. And so I went back on the road and, you know, got back a month later and, you know, Neil, one of the partners, handed me a check for, for $5,000. He said, that's your commissions. And, and that was like the first money I'd ever pulled out of the company. Wow. And uh, the next month I got a check for 10 grand and the next month a check for 10 grand. And, and here I was out on the road with all my friends, you know, all the surf shop owners and the surfers and I was playing golf with them in the summer and surfing and, and, and wasn't even work and I'm getting all this money. And I came up with this theme that's in my, my book, um, which is that you know, quite often your most disappointing disappointments become your greatest blessings. And here was a case where, you know, I thought I'd lost the company and I, I sort of had for a while, uh, but I'm making all this money and having a great time. And and so that went on for three or four years. And ultimately, I'm not going to go into this, but, you know, one of the partners bought out the other two and then he died and we'd had life insurance policy in place and I was able to buy the company back 100% from his widow. So, you know, quite often... The, you know the the greatest philosophy about your most disappointing disappointments becoming your greatest blessing is it's happening over and over and again in your lives and uh, when I tell that story from the stage that's the one most people identify with because they all have had disasters and I ask them look back a year ago and, and now tell me you know was that a disaster or was that a great blessing and they all always put their hand up and say it was a good thing I hope everybody's taking notes because I think every great entrepreneur goes through this. You get knocked down, you get knocked down on your butt, and uh, then you got to stand back up and get into it. And I don't know about you, Ryan. And, and by the way, everybody, please pick up his book, The Birth of a Brand, Launching Your Entrepreneurial Passion and Soul by Brian Smith. Uh, I, this is something where you get knocked down. This happened to Steve Jobs. He got ousted. Um, and yeah, it turns it out to be a blessing. Uh, a lot of times people judge a situation too quickly. You, know, you lose yeah. something and then it, it actually opened up your life to something better. And, and by the way, getting a five and $10,000 check back then, that was a hell of a lot of money, bro. <laughs> Oh, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, that was huge. I'm cracking up here. So you overcame all these odds and, and kicking it up uh, a notch to this next level. So what's it like to walk around and see the UGG brand pretty much everywhere? Oh, I, I love it. I mean, 
I'm still in love with the brand, and even though I've sold the company, I, I'm still a great ambassador by all the speaking and the book sales and everything like that. But I mean, I walk along the street, I see a person in Uggs, I always sort of walk by and I turn around and make sure it's the proper UG logo on the back of the boot. <laughs> ah, yeah, you're one of those. So, Inspector number so 20. Great. Inspector number 22. Is the yeah, it's, it's really funny, but, you know, I just make sure that, you know, I'm one of, one of the nicest compliments I ever had was um, was I was in Harrods in London a couple of years back. Right. And they just they just put out the brand new, you know, fall selection of Ugg boots on this humongous big round table. And I was just milling around looking at them. I was on vacation at the time. And this beautiful looking tall black guy approached me who was, you know, the salesman there and he, he said, sir, may I help you? And I, and I said, well, you know, this is probably too much information, but, you know, I'm, I'm the founder of this company. And he goes, oh, my God, you're Brian Smith, the surfer? And that was like, yeah, because the web, the website for UGG starts off, you know, in 1978, Brian Smith surfer brought six pairs of boots to America. Yeah. And all, all the salespeople, you know, knew the, the story of UGG and, and he just went, oh my God, you're Brian Smith, the surfer. And it was so cool that, <laughs> that here I was on the other side of the world and, you know, somebody selling Uggs would, would say that. So that, that, that's, that's why I love the brand and I love who I am. You know, that is incredible. I love that story. That is, that is, that's gotta be a great rush. Um, yeah. Now you're, you're a keynote speaking now. And I love this because I remember when you were really starting your keynote career right. and now yeah, that's I'm, when we met. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm looking at this and you're so damn polished, man. And I'm watching the quality of what you're doing and the shifting of your message. And I think what you're doing is extraordinary because you've lived it and you could sit on your ass and play golf all day. You know, you don't have yeah, to do this. Yeah. And, and instead you're still surfing and you're still teaching. And this entrepreneurial journey, I just, I'm in love with what you're doing and how you're doing it because Thanks. it's just, yeah. you're, you're not, you put on a suit because that's what we do on stage as keynote speakers, but you have huh. not let go of this adventuresome spirit that you have and you still surf today. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I, I still speak because of the response I get when I, you know, finish off the stage, so many people come up and tell me, oh my God, you know, I was about to give up my business this week and, and now I understand I'm in the infancy or the toddling stage and because and, and, I go through all the stages of building a business. We, we should talk about that to be quite honest. But that's where people uh, hear my message and they come up and thank me for sort of saving their business, you know. Yeah, well, and, let's talk about that. But, Okay, well, the theme of my book, again, it's the birth of a brand. The theme of the book is that you can't give birth to adults. And every business, doesn't matter whether it's a, a sitcom on TV or a new religion or a sandwich shop or a manufacturing business, everything starts with someone conceiving the idea and then giving birth, right? So the, the, the birth of UGG was me buying six pairs of samples in from Australia. And then every business or movement just goes into this infancy. It just lies there and it lies there and it lies there. And there's no amount of urging or feeding it or, you know, shaking the cradle. An infant can't get up and go to college. It has to be an infant, right? 
unfortunately, that's where most entrepreneurs give up. They've had the, the big aha, they've taken the first action, and they launch it out and it, nothing happens, right? And that's when they figure, I'm a failure, I'm going to give up. But it's not the case because you have to let it go through that infancy. Eventually, it'll start toddling. And that's a really cool stage because people are buying the product and magazines are writing articles about you and everything. And that quickly goes into the youth, which is the best part of every business because you've got consistent production, consistent sales, consistent you know, administration, and everything works like clockwork. You can run a $20 million company in that youth phase. But if it's a really, really great product or service, it's going to hit the teenage years. And you remember when you wanted to be in every party in town as a teenager? Well, oh, yeah. it's, the same, it's the same temptation. You want to be at every major trade show. You want to be in every mass retailer. And it's extremely dangerous because you can outstrip your cash flow so fast. Oh, and yeah. so event, eventually you, you get through that teenage phase and you become mature. But those, those are the, the normal phases of every business. And... So I like to be speaking to new entrepreneurs or people who are, you know, in the one to five million range because they've, they've had the hard knocks, but they haven't figured it out quite yet. And they're the groups that I really love to speak to from the stage. And they're, they're, I, I get such a great feedback afterwards is why I keep doing it. So it's sort of my give back to the entrepreneurial community. This is this is incredibly important, and bless you, man, for doing this because there are so many people who give up at at the wrong moment. Um, yeah. It is about birthing this, and you, you know, I always tell people you get you. A lot of people start uh, their business to create themselves another job, and yeah. they've got to push through that to figure out how to get that company running on its own as a company without them, and the you know the sales going build up. You're going to shift the way you do business at a million dollars a year, and you're going to shift extraordinarily when you're doing ten million dollars a year. And Big hopefully, time, yeah. through that transition, you're not stubborn, so stubborn like me uh, <laughs> that you don't listen to to the land and and the ground. What's going on? Um, like you, I I love the fact that it shifted from uh, a male surfer dude to really the female market saturated the heck out of this. And then now right. you're operating at a completely different level when you have business partners and you have investors coming in. And now yeah. the brand, you know, going from the mom and pop stores and the surfer shops to now getting into major retail outlets, this is a powerful, powerful story that you're telling. Uh, and more entrepreneurs need to hear this. So I love that you're getting out there, man. Yeah, that's good. And the reason I wrote the book in the way that I did, it starts out like with the aha moment and ends with the sale of the company. So it's like a roadmap for entrepreneurs at all different stages because it, it goes from the beginning of, of the infancy all the way through the teenage years and you know how I almost lost control a couple of times of the company in that period, all the way through to the sale of the company. And it's a fantastic roadmap. And, and no matter who's listening, you will be at one of the stages that I was in that book. So it'll be very appropriate for anyone to read that. The birth of a brand, pick it up. Brian, how do we get a hold of you? What websites and emails? Where do we go? Yeah, okay. My, my website is UGFounder. That's U-G-G founder.com. 
And uh, the book's available on Amazon. Uh, it's called The Birth of a Brand. And I've also read the audio version of it. So you can you know, hear 20, 30 hours of me talking if you want, which is really, a lot of people love the accent. You know? <laughs> I'm American. <laughs> Americans, we're sucker for the accent, bro. I'm telling you. We yeah, really yeah, are. It's great. Great. Yeah. Brian, Brian Smith, uh, if you're... If you need a keynote speaker that kicks it up a notch, this is the guy because he's living everything that comes out of his mouth. That's what I Fantastic. love about him. Man. And, and yeah, and you can get my email address from the website and uh, contact me that way. I'd love to come speak to your group. Excellent. Thank you. Now, we're going into the lightning round uh, here on Awakened Nation. I always ask three questions that get our listeners to go a little deeper with uh, my guests. Uh, are you okay. ready, my friend? You ready? You on well, I have no idea what's coming, but yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> um, my first question is, what is it about you that we don't know that might surprise us? Um, well, my greatest achievement is that I coached San Diego State rugby team um, when I first came to America. That was 40 years ago, 1979. Wow. and after five years, we won the Nationals, uh, which, you know, they were about to give up when I first met them, and we eventually won the Nationals. But that's only the tip of it, because when about probably 10 or 12 years ago, I was driving down the freeway here in San Diego, and I saw all these rugby posts on, at a big sporting field. And I went, what the hell is that? And I went back and uh, got out of the car, and, and I walked on the field, and I saw, you know, the the under 10s and under 12s and under 14-year-old you know, rugby kids. And I looked at the coach of that field. Oh, I coached him at San Diego State. And I looked at the coach on the next field. Oh, I coached him at San Diego State. And I looked at the referee. Oh, I coached him at San Diego State. You know? So here was the next generation of, of rugby players, and it's now wow. the fastest-growing sport in Southern California. Yeah. And then tonight I'm taking my grandson to – uh, his first practice, he's, he's six, yeah, six years old. And uh, so now there's three generations of rugby. And, 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 you know, way back in the day, I played against England. And I played against the New Zealand All Blacks. So it's like four generations of rugby all happening. So that, nobody knows that. So that, that's probably my, my greatest achievement. That's incredible. That's fantastic. Uh, three generations yeah. of uh, rugby players there. Yeah, that's, a, pretty that's cool. incredible. My second question, uh, I may know the answer to this, but um, what's your favorite album of all time? Oh, it has to be Dark Side of the Moon. Ah. Floyd. <laughs> yeah. That is, um, I don't think people understand the mindset that was going on in the 70s. And yeah. the Dark Side of the Moon really just it, it's a period piece and when you listen to it it echoes within the power of the sounds and and everything yeah and, 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 and it, it, it literally I, I would not exist except yeah. for that album because I, I heard the words tired of lying in the sunshine staying home to watch the rain you are young and life is long and there is time to kill today and, and I thought, oh, my God, he's talking about me because I just quit being an accountant and I didn't know what I was going to do. And then it went on. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you 
No one told you when to run. You missed the starting, <laughs> starting gun. gun. Yeah. <laughs> and I, as soon as I heard that, I went, oh, my God. You know, that's when I realized I, I, I'd spent 10 years being an accountant and hated it. And that's what got me on the plane to America to look for the next big thing. So wow. Pink Floyd was instrumental. Without, without that, those words, I don't, don't think I would have made it to America. Wow. Pink Floyd, man. That, that, yeah. That's an incredible story. Yeah, those lyrics are just uh, powerful, powerful lyrics when you really think yeah. about it and what they're, he was going through. They're all through. about life, yeah. Oh, yeah. they are. Deep Dude. stuff. And my last question for you, my friend, is at the end of this life, what would you like to really be known for? Um, just honesty and love, I guess. You know, just you know, being a good person. Awesome. Nothing, nothing, nothing else really counts. It's not, it's not about arg and it's not about, it's about how many people love you when you yeah. leave. That's a testament to who you are, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, Thanks, Brian Smith, thank you so much for being on Awakened Nation. I hope everybody got a lot out of this because I know I did. Great stories, Brian. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks, thanks for having me, Brad. I really appreciate it, and good luck with your own business. Thank you, my friend. Take care, and tune in Take next care. week to another episode of Awakened Nation. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.